And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. We're nearly at the end of another series of Bring Back V10s, and while that might sound like bad news, the good news is we're not there yet. And before we sign off until January 2023, we've got to hand over the control to you, our wonderful audience. As always, we've been asking you to submit questions about anything to do with the V10 era throughout this series. And as always, the selection we've had coming in have been brilliantly varied. Unfortunately, we can never get to them all, but if you'd like another chance to get your question answered, with significantly better odds, I might add, then there's still time to join the Race Members Club, where as well as getting early access to ad-free versions of the show, you'll also get an exclusive Ask Us Anything episode after this series has finished. To tackle the pile of questions we've picked for this episode, though, we've laid on three guests for you this time, Mark Hughes, Gary Anderson and Karun Chanduk. Mark, no traditional opening question this time, so instead we'll do the usual for the end of the series. What's the question from our list that you're most looking forward to? Um, the the first one, and it's um, about the comparison between um, Fernando Alonso at Renault with his teammate. So all downhill from there for Mark, but we'll, we'll start we'll start strong. <laughs> Gary, what about you? <laughs> Well, it's about really about engines, I suppose you might call it. Um, see the Yamaha mentioned in there somewhere, so that's going to be quite interesting. But uh, V10s, you know, anything uh, technical is good for me. Yeah, and the audience is well in tune with that as well. We get plenty that are directed just to you. Uh, Karun, good to have you with us as well. Which question stands out for you? I'm looking forward to hearing Gary's views on uh, Ford and Jaguar and all that, to be honest, because uh, I feel like, it's worthy of a book, that whole disaster, not just a podcast or an article in, in on the website. Yeah, this is a good way to tease a bit of uh, a bit of Jaguar content. We get a lot of requests to to do episodes on the Jaguar story, and probably one of the reasons we haven't done a full one yet is just because the amount of research required would be absolutely terrifying. So, so Gary can give us a a little bit of insight when we get there but uh, no opening question of course means we couldn't put this one out to our audience as we've done in this series so instead let's get some more thank yous out there to those of you leaving us five star reviews on apple Podcasts. thank you to geordie ferrari tifosi john pombert awc 19208 uh, further 1974 moz kid and thank you to those of you getting in touch who don't use Apple Podcasts, but would love to give us five stars as well, including Nikolai Vustin, Neil Macy and Andrew Sillett. If you're as big a fan of the show as they all are, clearly, then why not treat yourself to some Bring Back V10s merchandise? Head to shop.the-race.com and check out our range of t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles and notepads. And let us know if you have any ideas you'd like to see us create in the future and finally make sure you check out the race's new app it's available uh, for both android and apple devices free to download and free to use 
and it means access to everything we do here at the race is only ever one tap away. What more could you ask for? Well, perhaps what more you could ask for is some bring back V10's questions. So let's get on with that. Mark, let's get to your favourite in this episode then. Uh, it's from Mark Levy, or Levy, who asks, Back in 2005... Many thought Giancarlo Fisichella would give Fernando Alonso a hard time, and I thought he would. What happened? How and why was Alonso so much faster? There are many reasons, but the other, the overwhelming one is just the, the fun, phenomenon that that is Fernando Alonso. He's just one of the fiercest, most relentless competitors the sport's ever seen, and someone with a, a depth of talent to do extraordinary things. And by that, I don't just mean he does the same thing as everyone else but better I mean he often does a completely different thing working out what the car requires of him rather than always trying to make the car finesse the car to him you know sometimes you get to the point where that's just not within the car and you have to drive it a different way he's brilliant at improvising that and he could make any any driving style work and that particular car though that generation of cars 2005 and 6 Renaults were, were quite unusual they were very um the the weight distribution was rearward bias the aero distribution was rearward bias and it, it it gave the car some very unusual traits and he just worked out how to drive it in a way that um Fissi didn't even begin to work out um Fisichella was a very talented driver but he just didn't have the same multiple dimensions of Alonso and his personality and you often hear the phrase the difference between a good driver and a great one and, and that was embodied in that Renault lineup Alonso was a phenomenon and he, he looked at to be honest since first driving that Minardi um 2001 Fisichella was a good backup to that but he in comparison to Alonso was a very one-dimensional talent he just um he, he wouldn't even begin to comprehend the intensity of Alonso's competitive desire, if you like. He just wasn't at that level. He was just a, a talented driver who liked to race. And I think that difference was accentuated by the, the traits of that generation of, of Renault, which allowed Alonso to prevail pretty much immediately and made, made it there was never any question of who the number one was. Yeah, I sort of um, agree with that, Ray. I mean, having worked with Giancarlo a couple of times uh, through his, his Jordan uh, period, you know, it's always one of those sort of difficult things because you never really knew which Giancarlo was going to show up. Um, if the if the real Giancarlo showed up and he was, you know, hungry and liked the circuit and liked what he had for breakfast and whatever, then he was exceptionally good. But you know, as you say, Mark, he wasn't he wasn't very uh, two dimensional or three dimensional. He was very very singular in how he approached driving and. I, you know, one of the things I've always said, the real great people, the real great drivers um, pick up what they got whenever the red lights go out on a Sunday afternoon and then they do the best job they can with it. And that, that you have to adapt. You have to adapt to what you've got. We've seen it, you know, with Alonso. We've seen it with Michael Schumacher. We've seen it with Lewis Hamilton. We've seen it with Max Verstappen. And, and that's what makes them different. They just, there's no complaining they had a little bit too much understeer or the rear of the car was a little bit loose. It's just, find a solution to driving it. And that's one of the things Alonso, I think, you know, overpowered Giancarlo with, because no matter what the car was like, Alonso would always find a solution to it, whereas Giancarlo would struggle. And so many good drivers have gone by the wayside just, just because of that one simple phenomenon. Yeah, I I thought Fissi Keller in 97, I thought he was the real deal then. He looked great in that Jordan. And then he drove so many midfield cars, I wondered if we'd never get the chance to see what he was like in a top car. 
he got the chance and he was a, a distant number two teammate to the world champion in those two years in 05 and 06. So, yeah, all that promise. But I think Gary and Mark have outlined there to us that, uh, you know, there were clear reasons for why Fissy Keller didn't have what the greats have. I think the adaptability that Mark talks about is really important because if you look at that era, Fernando was the one who took his driving style to the extreme with the Michelin tyres, you know, that that uh, turn-in that he had where he had to go beyond, the, to, to get beyond the, the slip angle almost and then go through the graining phase for that sort of 8-10 laps and just cleared off the top of the tyre before they came back. And, you know, he was so good at ensuring that he maximized the performance through every phase of the tire in in that uh, that era and i think that's something that was very special about fernando let's go from one great world champion to another then and karun this is an ayrton senna question which you can tackle stephen gate says if honda hadn't pulled out of f1 at the end of 1992 and had committed for another few years how would ayrton senna and the mclaren mp4 8 had fared in 93 with Honda V12 power in the back. Would he have run Alain Prost closer for the title or even taken it? And if he was neck and neck with Prost for the title, would he have still tried to leave for Williams in 1994? So there's a couple of questions in there. So I think that the first bit is, I think they would have been closer. You know, you just have to watch the onboards of the McLaren from Silverstone and that great battle that he and Prost were having to recognize what a power deficit he had. And obviously, you know, it was all a bit tricky for McLaren at that time because Ford had what they classified as the works contract with Benetton. So, you know, for a large part of that season, McLaren were one speck below Benetton as well in terms of, of power. So I think the actual MP4-8 chassis was a very, very good car. They... They'd been left behind in 92 with the active suspension, but they'd poached Paddy Lowe at that time. And, uh, you know, he, uh, and, and he'd gone across to do, to do the electronics, but straight away on the, the chassis side, I think they'd done a lot of good work over the winter of, of 92 into 93. So the chassis was actually very, very good. Um, and, uh, you know, looking back at 92, obviously McLaren got, absolutely destroyed by Williams that year. But the race that they got closest to pole position was in Monza, which is a power circuit, obviously. Uh, and so it's, that's, okay, he, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about Canada, for example, where we had mixed conditions and Senna took pole, but I'm saying if you look at the bulk of races, they were often over a second, sometimes two seconds behind. But in Monza on the Friday quality, Senna was only, I think, three tenths behind and he actually didn't get a chance to improve on Saturday. So he would have been quite close to Nigel. And if Honda carried on committing the resources, you know, Gary worked with Honda and then understands their capabilities. And we've seen, frankly, today what a, what a great job they're doing in F1 if they're fully committed and put the resources behind it. So I think an MP48 McLaren active car with a motivated Ayrton Senna and a Honda engine would have been a very, very strong competitor for a Williams Renault Prost, especially because Prost didn't really like the active car. You know, he's, I've spoken to him on a couple of occasions about it, and he didn't like the way the, the movement of the active car felt unnatural to him. He, he wasn't 100% comfortable with it in a way that Nigel Mansell was. So 
yeah, it, it's. I think it's one of the great big what ifs, really. That uh, that battle there. Uh, and to answer the question, if if they were if they were winning, why would Senna leave? <laughs> frankly, so um, you know, yeah, he may well have still gone to Williams for ninety four if they weren't winning. But uh, ultimately, he just wanted to win. Next question is from Roland Sang, and uh, you can all give us an answer on this one because Roland asks. If Mercedes were the kings of hybrid engines, who would hold that mantle for the V10 era? Gary, I'm going to let you go first here. And I guess the key thing for us to establish first for you is are you picking an engine you ran during your career or one you admired from afar? Um, well, I think I have to pick two here, um, to be <laughs> to be honest about it, because, you know, there is there is the best engines out there and then there is the best value for money. And I think the, the Brian Hart package that we had in 94 was, you know, value for money-wise, without doubt, the best V10 that was there. It was a fantastic little engine, um, real commitment from Brian, um, very good on, on fuel, um, you know, just an installation in the car, the whole thing. It was just a really well-thought-out little package. I mean, we had it in, in, uh, in 93 as well, but it was... You know, when I first saw it, it was uh, a kit form on a dyno, and we we had it in the car a month later. So, you know, we didn't expect great things from it in '93 because it needed more time. But value for money and horsepower for money spent, um, without doubt, that's the best in the pit lane for me. Um, and then on top of that, then you've got obviously the big boys, and uh, we moved to Peugeot. Uh, for for 95, 96, 97. And they obviously did a good job. Very unreliable to begin with, um, but the, 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 the progress was good. And in the end of 97, the horsepower figures were, were very good. And I think if we continued with them in 98, they would have been right up there with the best. But overall, I think I have to, I'd have to sort of say the Ferrari package did a very good job. You know, you take 2004, Ferrari, it's a dream team. You know, they had everything. They had every single thing you could ever ever have. But the, the biggest thing they did have was, you know, the engine and the chassis was under their own roof. It was their own package. They could create their own package. And not many of the other teams really had that so close relationship between the engine package and the chassis package. And obviously with Ross and Jean Todd and Stefano Domenicali and uh, Michael Rubens, you know, the whole package there was just, well, dream team, perfect, perfect jigsaw to put together. If you wanted to pick up all the pieces, you know, they, they fitted together very, very well. So I'd have to pick that, the Ferrari engine, as the, the ultimate for me. You know, not, not much ahead maybe of the Renault, but just because they had that ability to sort of package the whole thing to suit the requirement of the whole package. And that's 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 very, very important when it comes to it. You're not, you're not fighting with an engine company if you are doing it all as one unit. You know, whereas uh, a chassis manufacturer and, a, and an engine manufacturer don't always see the same direction. I'm going to go with the Renault because I think from 92 to 97, they won six Constructors World Championships in a row. And, you know, they really raised the bar in terms of, of engine performance in that era. I think Gary's raised a good point in terms of the, the BMW as well, uh, because I think unquestionably you look at 2000. Two, three, maybe even four. The BMW engine was sensational, wasn't it? In that era of nineteen thousand plus RPM. But ultimately, they didn't get to win the championship. You could argue there's more to do with Williams than BMW 
for for that fact. But um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Rhino because I think um, just just for the sheer length of success they had, and actually when they put that engine into the Ligier or the Benetton even in '95, you know the the it raised the performance of those teams, wasn't it? It wasn't just the Williams cars that were that were successful. Yeah, same for me. For all the reasons you've listed there, Renault feels like the defining engine of the of the era for me. We get some messages sometimes saying that we don't give Renault enough credit for their V10 engines. Uh, hopefully, Karun and I have have disproved that and shown Renault a bit of love. Mark, who, which engine would you pick, or which manufacturer? Well, I think you, you, it illustrates how good the V10 era was for in competitive terms because. You you had you can make a case for Renault, you can make a case for Ferrari, um, you can make a case probably the back end of it for Mercedes. They were they were doing well at the back of it, and then, but um, I'd say the biggest advantage anyone had in sheer grunt was BMW in two thousand and one and two, and they're just phenomenal. They moved the game on. There was time when they had maybe fifty horsepower over everyone, um, but I think if you're looking over the whole period, a sustained period. Yeah, it's the Renault, or the Ferrari, but um, my my favourite little snapshot would be the the, the BMW, probably of um, oh one early or two. Good choices across the board there, I think. Gary's got his hand up. Yeah, no, I just like to come back a little bit on that. I mean, that, uh, that's why I'm saying really that you know the the engine manufacturer and the chassis manufacturer don't always blend together as well as they should do. Without doubt, BMW had you know lots and lots of horsepower. Um, but if I relate it back to, you know, going back to Brian Hart's engine um, in, in 94 for us, you know, it didn't have lots of horsepower, but it had everything. It, it was a very good package, and I think that's very important. It's so easy to just get focused on this one thing, this horsepower stuff. And if you, if you actually move on to the to the V8 era and uh, the relationship with, with uh, Red Bull and, and uh, Renault, you know, that was one of the pack, one of the one of the things that showed me that the package is more important than any individual part of it because, you know, they had a good little engine. They had um, good fuel economy. It was very easy to cool, so the aerodynamically the car could be made better. Um, so it's, it's always important, I think, the relationship between the, the chassis manufacturer and the engine manufacturer to find the right solution. It's not just about mac- you know, maximizing the horsepower and away you go. It's, it's about so much more. So, yeah, I don't, don't disagree with you. We ran it all the way. They were very, very strong, and they definitely set a new a new level. Um, but there's lots of other reasons for others being, you know, being just as good. Mark, the next question we'll we'll throw to you. Lace Stroll has come up with a clever way to get us to talk about Stefan Beloff, who of course died years before F1's V10 era began. But Lace has picked up on the talk that Beloff was heading to Ferrari in F1 before his death. So the question is. If Stefan Beloff never had his accident and signed for Ferrari for 1986, how would he have done in his first title contending car in 1990 against Alain Prost? And how would his V10 era career have played out? I like the link. I like the, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hanging by a thread sometimes, but yeah, we got there. Yeah. We'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually did a piece a few years ago on Stefan talking to his friends and family and all those on racing who work with him. And I can tell you, he, he already had a signed Ferrari contract for 1986. He was going there. It had been signed by both sides. Um, so I think he would certainly have won races in that 1987 Ferrari that was very, very quick back end of that year. 
Had he still been there in 1990 and had Prost still joined, neither of which we could take as red, obviously, but just let's go with it. I think you'd potentially seen a similar pattern to what we saw McLaren between Senna and Prost, but who knows the sort of driver Beloff would have developed into. He had this incredible talent, but on the surface, he has this happy-go-lucky attitude that was very different from Senna's. And um, beneath that, I think there was that intense focus and intelligence, but what would have been required to cement his place in Ferrari and for him to exploit the full possibilities of that team. It was a very political place at that time. And he would certainly have won many races and given some truly spectacular performances, but we sadly didn't get to see how his other qualities would have been developed to match that. So, um, yeah, definitely it would have been um, some legendary stuff, but in terms of the specifics, it, we, we, can't, we can't know. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Karun, like me, you're an admirer of the 97 F1 season, so you can take this one from Daniel Reeder, who asks, could McLaren Mercedes have won the 1997 Constructors' World Championship if they hadn't had such poor reliability? So I guess, Karun, this is picking up on all those races we saw perhaps in the second half of the year where McLaren's kept breaking down from the lead. Yeah, I guess so. But I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that they would have been a championship contender because even in terms of outright pace. They weren't quite there with Williams or, or Ferrari, really. Uh, I think, um, yes, Mika, you know, was competitive. Silverstone, for example, Nürburgring races, you know, the, the wins lost, uh, unquestionably. DC obviously managed to get the victories um, at Monza and at Melbourne at the start of the season. But I think if, if you're going to play the what-if game, you've also got to play the what-if in terms of the races that Williams and Ferrari threw away. Because this was an era, as, as Gary well knows, where they didn't have the bulletproof reliability that we have today. Frankly, I quite enjoy that. You know, I imagine being a technical director um, or a driver in that era sitting on the pit wall. It's not very relaxing when you know the engine could go pop at any time. But as a fan watching, you know, you felt it was less predictable. Whereas today... You kind of go, well, it's settled now. They're all just going to drive around to the finish. There's no risk of them losing out, really. Very low risk in terms of reliability. Um, so, no, I, I don't think they would have been championship contenders. I think there's an argument to say they would have finished ahead of Benetton because they only finished four points behind them, I think, at the end of the year. And uh, certainly they had much worse reliability. And they probably had better drivers than Benetton at that point. So, yeah, I think they probably would have been third, but I don't think they would have been fighting for the win. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, th- I think after DC's somewhat surprise win in Australia, the, the, the car was not close enough to the pace in that first chunk of the season. And then when they got it, when they got it going in the second half of the year, they were at the front, particularly in race trim. But yeah, I, I think Hackinen and DC breaking down from the lead in a few races doesn't doesn't extrapolate to a, a missed title challenge that year. But McLaren definitely set themselves up well for the arrival of Adrian Newey and his first car the following season. Let's move them from uh, a potential, well, a question about a potential championship winning car to quite the opposite. Andrew Duffield asks, what was the deal with Yamaha entering F1? Why would a motorcycle manufacturer enter the world's premier car racing championship? Did it help them sell their superbikes? And why did they ultimately fail? So Gary, you had the misfortune to run Yamaha engines with Jordan in 1992. You've told your stories before about why that engine was so bad, how unreliable it was. But did you ever get an explanation about why Yamaha was in F1 in the first place? The engines were free, so Yamaha clearly weren't doing it for the money. Um, yeah, they clearly weren't doing it for the money. I mean, the, the thing is, that it was it was a bit of a, a subsidiary of Yamaha in a way, so not a way. Um, I'll answer the second question first because what they wanted to do was build a road car, a you know a supercar as such, and they they felt that Formula One could sell that supercar for them. And they actually did build one in Milton Keynes. Um, you know, they, they set up over here, and but I, I never really saw that car. But to go back to the beginning of it, obviously they were with Brabham before they were with us. And at the end of 1991, we had overspent. And basically, we were financially in trouble as a team. And, uh, you know, Yamaha coming in was, you know, they were our saviour, to be honest. So I pat them on the back for that. Um but we, I went there after Eddie had gone to, to sign a deal with them. I went to Japan to to see them and went to the factory. And you know the the, the motorcycle side was you know, massive massive place. Um, and he went into reception and asked for such and such a one. I forget what his name was now. And he sent me around the corner. Um, a, somebody will meet me around the side of the building. And he went around the side of the building, and there was a sort of lean to, and that was the Formula One shop. Um, there was a door into the main motorcycle building, but they, it was a, a one-way door as such. It was locked from one side. So you couldn't go in, but you could get out. <laughs> um, and basically, they were working on this very small shop uh, on the side of the main uh, motorcycle area, which was, okay, understandable, I suppose. But there was a, I remember there was a sump sitting on the floor of one of the engines, and I tried to lift it, and I couldn't move it. And I thought it must be bolted down. They must be doing some you know, torsional stiffness checks or something. But it wasn't. It was actually just sitting there. It was very, very heavy. And that was one of the reasons why they failed. You know, the engine was incredibly heavy. Um, 30, uh, from memory, something like 35 kilograms heavier than the engine we had uh, the year before, the, the, the Ford. So, you know, they the gone various routes. Um, they had, you know, five valve heads, four valve heads, all sorts of stuff. But you never, ever got two engines the same. If you were lucky enough to get a good one, then, to be honest, it worked very well. It just didn't last very long. And again, as I say, it was all about the road car and trying to sell the road car, which never really made the market. So, um, difficult period, but they were something that we, as Jordan, needed for that period to get us through and survive. Gary, why do you think they carried on for five 
best, it was five years or so, wasn't it? Because, you know, they were in the back of the, the arrows in 97. And uh, that's a long time to persevere for someone who wasn't really there for a reason. Well, I mean, I can tell you some of the stories. We, we, we obviously had problems and we were at a point where, um, you know, pulling our hair out. And we sat down in the boardroom at, at Jordan Grand Prix with the Yamaha people and Brian Hart and tried to get them to work with Brian. But Brian wasn't interested in trying to develop their engine. You know, the 12-cylinder, he had his V10. So basically it would have been a badging operation. And Yamaha wouldn't do that. So then Yamaha came back to us with, with John Judd. And again, we sat down in the boardroom and had a long chat about it. And John promised them that for Monza, he would have an engine that would be he would he would have their engine developed to a point where at Monza it would it would be no more than ten horsepower down on the Honda and the McLaren. So you know Yamaha are sitting there thinking, "Wow, fantastic!" So I got John and took him out of the room, and I said, "John, what are you doing? You know that, that's, that's that's absolute rubbish. You know you're talking <laughs> out the top of your head." He said, I've got, I forget what it was, 38 people at work. He said, I've got to keep them employed. I'll tell them anything they want to hear. And that was it. it never, that engine never arrived. The developments never arrived on that engine. And the next year it was a, a rebadged uh, Judd V10. Um, and that was where, that's how it kept going, basically. It was a, a rebadging effort. Yamaha themselves had really very little to do with it, except for paying John Judd's wages. Um so, you know, that's why I say they hadn't got their eyes open to the whole thing that was going on. You know, it had been an ideal situation for them to have done that with Brian Hart. It was suited us very well. And I'm pleased to say that Eddie took the bull by the horns and signed the deal with, with Brian in Monza um, because that engine, as I say, it never arrived from John Judd. We had no developments, just more reliability problems. That's fascinating. I'm disappointed that Andrew's question didn't ask if they were doing it to sell pianos, though. Um, but... Well, I, actually, if I could just put in there, one of the, one of the things I remember um, uh, Stefan the Modern was saying to, to the Yamaha people, they said, you know, it's all great. You're in the car and it's just, it's all going. It's, you know, it's revved quite highly. I forget what the revs were at that time, 13,500 or something, but, you know, quite high revs relatively. And he said, it's all going around you and all this noise is going on, but it feels like it's a sewing machine. If you put your finger on the, on the front of the car, it would just stop. He said, it's got no power. It's just all noise and all around you, but there's just no power. So it was a Yamaha sewing machine, not a piano. Yeah, there wow. you go. You learn something <laughs> new every day. Uh, the next couple of questions are about Ralph Schumacher, so we'll combine them. Uh, Tom Thiedem asks simply, how good was Ralph Schumacher? And Nick Osborne asks, if Ralph remained with Jordan after 1998, do you think he would have had a similar title challenge to Heinz Held Frentzen? in 1999 now mark you wrote an article for the race members club a while back about ralph so uh, you can take this one on for us yeah at his best ralph was incredibly quick um certain combination like he's very quick in the fast corners um very quick with a particular car tray with a lot of overlap between the braking and the corner phases um i think which was something he consciously copied from michael um, the Michelins that uh, Williams were running um, latterly, they, they, they worked very well with that. Um, but he wasn't a very adaptive driver. If the car and the traits didn't align with what he needed, he could be unimpressive. And that's what we're talking about earlier, the almost polar opposite of Fernando Alonso. 
And he did seem to suffer from swings in performance, even unrelated to the car. And yeah, he's a difficult one because he could be so impressive at his best, but it, it, you didn't know when, you know, you could have a, a series of races where you thought, yeah, he's cracked it. And then all of a sudden it would just fall away and it would, would fall away for quite a long time before it would come back up again. Um, could he have done what Frenton did in 99? Maybe because Heinz Harold was another one of those who had these swings, but he really got on a roll that year. So, yeah, maybe maybe Ralph could have done the same. Who knows? But that's the thing is, you you, you didn't know. You didn't know with either of those guys. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I worked with Ralph, obviously, at the, in his Jordan days. And, um, you know, when he started to drive for us, he was he was new. Uh, and that, that was all, you know, it was all good stuff. It was one of those sort of things where, he needed to learn about it. But I remember he was doing a, a pre-season test at, uh, at Magna Cur. And um, I went out to the test for the sort of second day. And it, Magna Cur, first corner, you, it's a fast, very fast left-hander. Then you got a tightening up right-hander. And as you say, Mark, the overlap of throttle and brakes. Um, but he, he didn't really, hadn't really experienced the overlap. He just kept it flat through there. But the brake pressure was horrendous, you know, slow, trying to slow the car down. So he, he could actually, he wondered why the gearbox would brake because you would go into the corner flat, stand on the brakes, go down two gears and uh, still keep it flat. And you wonder why the gearbox wouldn't sort of cope with it all. And the brakes were screaming enough, you know, it was using up the brake discs in 10 laps and that sort of thing. So after having a chat with him about the, the, the physics of, you know, one pedal makes it stop and one pedal makes it go, and you need to make sure that you don't have both of them on at the same time. Um, he he, he became you know, very good at it. But I think you know his name was Schumacher, and Michael was obviously in his heyday at that point in time. And you know Ralph tried to drive in the same way as Michael did. Michael was very very good at changing the car's balance by using the brake and the throttle, you know, at the same time to a certain degree. Um, but Ralph, as I say, it was just. You know, it was 100% on both sometimes, and, and it just didn't didn't really work very well. But again, I think he was a quick driver. I liked the guy because you knew that whenever he was going out and qualifying, what you had was what you had, and he would wring its neck. Um, maybe make mistakes on the way there, but he was always going to give it give it everything he had because you know, that's, that's the only way he knew. And uh, sometimes it worked out for him, and, and sometimes it didn't. But um, I don't, I'm not sure that he was just right up there with... Uh, with Heinz Harald Frensen, as far as the the understanding of what was going on, Frensen was a bit more of a um, an engineer, I suppose, to 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 his detriment, to be honest. Um, but uh, Ralph wasn't an engineer by any means. Ralph just drove the wheels of the car. There were certain circuits where he seemed to excel, wasn't it? Imola, Magnico, Nurburgring, Canada, where you could almost guarantee he was going to be in the mix uh, if the car gave him the opportunity to be. Uh, but I think the the phrase Mark used is probably the the one that stands out for a driver like Ralph, which is on his day. And unfortunately, for him, that was the difference between him and Michael because Michael very rarely had an off day. Uh, I can think of the odd Chinese Grand Prix where where it just completely fell apart for him. But across a a career that went from let's ignore the Mercedes years for a minute, but across that fifteen year first career of F one. You can count the off days Michael Schumacher had on one hand, um, and, and I think that that was the difference. The next question uh, you can take for us, Karun, it might even involve you talking about some of your TV colleagues. As Sam Bedford says, 
would love to know which of the British underdogs of the era most deserved more than they got. And Sam says maybe Martin Brundle deserved a longer stint at Benetton or Jonathan Palmer deserved longer in F1. Or is there someone else? I think Martin actually is one of the most underrated drivers in, in F1 for if you and I think so much of it comes down to the statistics, you know, the fact that he didn't win a Grand Prix and there are other drivers who who did from that era counts against him. But, you know, he he was had he was in an era where he had very tough teammates, Schumacher, Hakkinen, um, you know, the likes of Blundell, even who who were very, very good, strong drivers. And uh, you know, you go even to the leash here time, right? In 95, he was doing a part program. He only got to do half the races because they were doing that, that you know, merry-go-round for his seat alongside um, Aguri Suzuki. And, you know, he he did a fantastic job in that car. So I actually think he is one of the more more underrated drivers. And I think, uh, Mark, I remember having this conversation with you, actually, about underrated drivers. And, and we sort of both seem to conclude that Martin's got to be one of your one of the top on the list. Yeah, sure. And I think um, after he hurt his foot in, um, well, that's a bit of an understatement, but it must be, his foot was just hanging by a, a, th- a thread. It, um, in, in, was it Detroit? Or Dallas, it, wasn't well, it? Dallas, Dallas, yes, yeah, Dallas. In 84, in his, his, his rookie season, um, he really couldn't left foot break and, and left foot break and became increasingly important um, is, is the technology moved on and we went to you know we went to paddle shifts and two two pedals um on on the floor rather than three and he, he just couldn't get he just couldn't generate the, the pedal pressures that you needed um to fully exploit the brakes over over one lap and i think that hurt against his you know you, you, get, you get judged very much on your, your qualifying pace don't you in formula one and that combined with the fact that I mean, as well as going up head to head with Senna in Formula Three, his teammates were Stefan Beloff, Mika Hakkinen, and Michael Schumacher, and you're being compared, you know, with those, with those guys on a over a single lap. Um, you know, he give he gave Michael on occasion a, a pretty good run for his money in, in the races in '92 in the, in the Benetton. Um, yeah, definitely he should have. Um, he's definitely worthy of. Uh, a few Grand Prix wins um, had his, uh, things gone just slightly differently. And I think uh, to, to emphasise the point on Martin's feet, those of you who have listened to our Australia 96 episode will recall that he said when he was running up and down the pit lane looking for Sid Watkins and giving the thumbs up, that famous shot, that was the first time he had run on on a hard surface since sustaining those injuries. And he said that little little jog up and down the pit lane hurt more than anything that happened in that massive shunt he had in Melbourne. So that, that's how much pain or how, how difficult or how physically limited he was by those injuries. Let's move on to our next question from Chris United 93 who always sends us plenty to choose from. This is the one we've picked this time and it's for Gary. Chris says, if Stuart had got the Ford engine deal but didn't become Jaguar, with Eddie Irvine incoming, Johnny Herbert knowing the team and level-headed people at the top, how far could they have gone into the manufacturer era and what success would have been obtained? So, of course, Gary, this, I guess we're, we're taking the end of 99 when Stuart became Jaguar and we're not 
doing the Jaguar thing. So what could have been achieved if Ford had left it alone and just supplied what I think were quite potent engines? And how would the team have got on when the wave of manufacturers came in? Could Jackie's team have sustained a challenge against all of that factory might that was coming into F1? Great question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's see what the answer is. Um, well, I think, first of all, the thing is that the engine in 99 was a fantastic little unit. It was a really, really good package, but it did suffer some consequences, reliability consequences, from being a very light package, and that had to change. And to be 100% honest, honest with you, the engine for 2000 wasn't as good as the engine for 99. It had to be detuned a little bit. Um, not intentionally, but it just had to be detuned a little bit to try and dra dra drag in some more reliability. So in reality, 99 to 2000, engine performance-wise, there wasn't going to be much difference in it. Whether the others had stepped forward or not, I don't know, but we didn't get a better package. Now, the next bit about the car is obviously, you know, we're, we're a group of people that were designing the car. Um, the, the company was taken over by, by, Jag by Ford, uh, Jaguar as such. Um, but that didn't change what we designed. And we would, as a group, we'd probably made the same mistakes. But we'd had a different situation as soon as we realized those mistakes. And that was the thing that held us up whenever we, we did become Jaguar was the fact that the, the, uh, the level-headed people, I never found one of them. Um, and to actually, you know, to, 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 to function properly, you need a group of people that believe in each other. And that's the one thing that Ford immediately um, destroyed in, in Stuart Grand Prix was the belief in anybody there. Um, it just, you know, when, it, when you had a problem, it was, you know, it needs to be sorted the Ford way. Um, and we had some people come in to do an analysis, for example, on the gearbox because we broke one driver would, would uh, break some gears. Johnny would break gears and, and Eddie wouldn't. And we had this company come in that Ford used for analysis on, you know, why, you're, why one day you're, your side window wouldn't go up or, you know, they, they had some incredible groups of people and they were, they came in and they spent three months to, to try and understand the problem, you know, using every day, the weather, the humidity, the braking forces, the, the tire level, the fuel level, everything was on the car uh, during the period where you broke a gear. And they come back after three months and said, well, we, we don't have any, any idea. And, you know, you could have said that three months ago because we have an idea, but we could not inflict, it, inflict a, a solution until they had said, either we don't know or um, or we do know, but it probably won't work. You know, it was, just, it was just such a difficult set of circumstances. So could they have gone better than we ended up with, uh, with performing? Yes, by a substantial amount, because the, the fixes that we had at the end of the season that made the car into a pretty good little package in the last couple of races would have been instigated by race four or race five, except for when you wanted to try and do it, people just stood in your way and they wouldn't let you do it. I mean, I was actually physically told I was not allowed to, th well, to think about the problem in reality, that it was somebody else's problem now, not my problem. And it's just the way they, they, that Ford worked. It was just impossible. Well, we can't leave Jaguar there. We've got another question on the topic. So, uh, Mark, we'll throw this one to you. This is from Charles Trendacosta, who says, could you make the argument that Ford was a bigger failure in running its F1 team than Toyota was? The same corporate level issues plagued both, but Ford took over an existing team as opposed to starting a new one 
pulled out sooner and that team within five years of them pulling out was a championship contender. Oh, you totally could. Ford's programme was a bigger failure than Toyota's. Um, that had many issues in common, as you say. Uh, but Toyota's was a much more committed program. The facilities it created from scratch or from the foundations of a rally team. And they, they were state-of-the-art and very impressive. And, um, you know, still got the, the, their wind tunnels still being used. And um, they pulled together a couple of uh, very competitive cars. The Toyota of 06 was really very good indeed. Should have won a couple of Grand Prix on merit. So, yeah, unquestionably a better effort than Ford. So you just piggybacked onto the back of what had been achieved at Stewart, but misunderstood how it had been done. Let's move on to a question from Simon Ems, and this is about Damon Hill. Simon says, I've recently been watching the BBC highlights from the 1993 season and have been really impressed at how well Damon Hill did, especially as a relative rookie. Was that a reflection of how good Damon was, how much better than the rest of the field the Williams was and how little Prost was having to push, or how determined Damon was not to squander his opportunity. If Damon had made it to F1 in the mid-1980s, would he be thought of as one of the greats, or did a late start work to his advantage? It is my favourite statistic that he won more races than both Mika Hakkinen and Kimi Raikkonen. So Karun, anyone who listens when you and Damon are on commentary duties together during sessions on Sky will know you probably remember more about Damon's career than he does. So uh, you can answer this one. Not probably. I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, I think Damon is um, is also, going back to the earlier conversation about Martin, Damon is also a very underrated world champion, to be honest. You know, if you consider how late he came into the sport, uh, the circumstances with which he came in as well. You know, he had all the, the pressure of the Hill surname without really the benefits. You know, they, they, they weren't in a, a financially good position as a family uh, when his father was tragically killed. And, you know, he was working as a bike courier. And, um, yeah, certainly, you know, it helped him to drum up with a sponsorship in Formula Ford and stuff. But Damon, you know, by the time he got to F1, he was already in his 30s, uh, which compared... That with the modern era is is a huge difference, but even back then it was quite late. And you know, you just have to look at his mental strength and the tenacity with which he carried himself and the team, frankly, through that '94 season. And I think that tells you so much about Damon as a character. Um, you know, the races, some of the races he drove that year, Suzuka is the obvious standout. But even that Adelaide race, you know, he was there right behind Michael uh, in a car that was probably a better car, uh, piling the pressure on and forcing Michael into that error. Uh, I think the the trouble for Damon, where he's he's sometimes, you know, overlooked um, in when people look back around that era as, as you know, as it does the great drivers, is that he didn't have a great season in 95. In 99, and Gary will tell us more about this, I'm sure. In 99, he just didn't want to be at Jordan. He was done by that stage. And for various commercial reasons, uh, Eddie kind of forced him to carry on. I think if it was up to him, he would have stopped at the British Grand Prix. Uh, and he, he, he had to be dragged through the rest of the season. Um, but, you know, I think he he is an underrated driver. I think he whether he would have been up against... The going back to the question about the late 80s, you know, you're talking Senna, Prost, Mansell, um, PK, well, the end of PK's career, really. 
Um, that that's a that's a tricky one. But I think there's very few drivers on the planet really who, who would be in the Senna Prost Mansell league. Um, I think on his day he would have been, but perhaps not all the time. And we'll uh, we'll stick with the uh, the theme of Caroon's TV colleagues. Uh, and Mark can take this one. This is from Daniel who wants to know, how good was Anthony Davidson? And uh, Daniel says, very technically minded, fast and consistent, but he never got a proper chance. Yeah, I was always curious to know that too. He, he was capable of some extremely impressive qualifying laps in that Super Aguri, and I remember one in particular he did in Istanbul. It was a fabulous lap. It was about 11th quickest in you know what was probably the slowest car there. And um, as we know, he's a great understanding of the dynamics of a racing car, and then and the technicality. So he was he was very well prepared. Um, had he ever got his bump into a, a, a good car for a, you know a season? Um, quite often you don't get to see the full qualities of an F1 driver until he gets that competitive opportunity, and then you then see how deep he can dig to win at the front. And I, I'd have been intrigued to see how he went. It, it, sadly, it wasn't a B. But um, <clears throat> you know, you, you compare him to his. Uh, teammate Takuma Sato and it, he was Honda's favoured son and that, that was very much uh, set up that team was very much set up around him and he was usually quicker than Takuma you know so um, a two time Indy 500 winner and I think this, there's nothing to suggest that um, Anthony couldn't have had a very successful Formula 1 career if um, if, he'd, if he'd got the, the good car if the good car had come along but um, yeah he's 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 not he's not unique in that, but um, it would have been certainly intriguing to see. Our next question is from Christopher Foxen. Christopher says, "Can you invent a better method for pre-qualifying than the one that was used between 1989 and 92? The system did not work well, as some fast cars were knocked out on Friday morning when they went faster than teams in actual qualifying." Now, before we hear from Gary on this, as he knows what it was like to take part in pre-qualifying, let's hear from the man we had to get to answer this loaded backmarker question. So here is what Ed Straw thinks. Well, my first reaction is to say that pre-qualifying should never be tampered with because it was just outstanding, but it was memorable because it was really somewhat absurd and far from the most fair way to give what were often new and minnowed. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 
teams, although occasionally you did have a team like Ligier dropping into it, the opportunity to show their worth. So for an improved system, you'd need a way to make it a little more fair while still dealing with the problems of space on track because circuits are only so big. And even more importantly, space in the garages. This was, above all, a problem of practicality. So ideally, you'd want to create more track time while getting the detritus, as dictated by lap times, out of the way before practice proper. So why not have a longer session on Thursday afternoon? It'd be better for teams, still a green track, still high pressure, but it would allow the teams to be F1 drivers and the teams to be F1 teams, rather than participating in just a mad scramble where nobody really knows what they're doing. So let the group of pre-qualifiers have, say, a free practice session and then maybe a separate short qualifying session after it. You could make it two hours for practice, then 30 minutes for qualifying. That would at least make things a bit more representative and allow people not to get up at ridiculous times on Friday morning. There are limitations. You need marshals and you need the officials up and running, but it would make pre-qualifying less of an afterthought while also allowing the teams and drivers greater opportunity to improve and evolve. You'd still end up with Bruno Giacomelli doing two laps decades off the pace in a life, or Perry McCarthy making it about 300 metres before his Andrea Moda expired, but it would be less of a lottery for the others. So if you had at least a bit of cash and a lot of competence as a team, you'd have a chance to make an impression because there would at least be some time to dial in the car and for the driver to get on top of the track. To tackle that problem of cars being eliminated in pre-qualifying that were quicker than the cars that didn't have to take part... I'd be tempted to make the adjustment of who has to pre-qualifying a little bit more frequent. This was only done mid-season and at the end of the year, but doing it every four races, say, would make things a bit more lively, especially if you didn't do it on points scored, but instead on rolling qualifying position average, perhaps. That would add a little bit of peril and mean that the teams that were not pre-qualifying but struggling couldn't relax too much. And also, if this was a system for today, given the drive for extra action for fans, you could even have a short sprint race for pre-qualifiers on Thursday, provided there's enough of them. Bit of extra entertainment. The one downside of the idea of Thursday running, though, is that it would make pre-qualifying less ridiculous, which was kind of the point. It was a genuinely bad way of accommodating so many teams, but that was its beauty, and that's why I love it. Okay, that's Ed's theory. Gary, as I said before, you experienced pre-qualifying in the first half of 1991 with Jordan. What would you have done to come up with a better or perhaps, as Christopher says, a fairer system? Um, I think it was very difficult because, I, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I wasn't against the system at all because what happened there was, you know, we came in as new teams um, or the teams that didn't do well enough the year before when they pre-qualifying. And that meant you had a little bit of extra track time. So as a team, you know, we, we arrived at races never having seen the circuit. There was no, you know, we didn't get GPS track data or any of that sort of stuff. We went there, had a walk around it, seeing which way the wind was blowing and decided which, which wing we'd run. So it was one of those sort of situations where it was very early in the morning. And the track was always dirty. Um, that was one of the biggest problems because we were competing against the Pirelli tyres Pirelli would let their guys do a run, take the tires back, clean them all up on their on their sort of brake or their tire balancing devices, take off the graining and whatever off them, and then uh, and use them again. Goodyear wouldn't do that, so we we had two sets of tires per car, and basically you had to have the car running in the last five minutes when the track was clearing up. When you, if you could do that, the Goodyear tire would be better than the Pirelli tire. So. It was quite simple. We we sort of worked that out fairly early. Um, 
first race of the first race of the season in Phoenix, uh, Andrea didn't qualify because again it was the same thing. We were we were up there quite happily, but the track was just getting better and better and better. So it was you had to be there at the last five minutes, and he wasn't. So you know, on one hand, it burned you out a little bit because it was an early start, it was a lot of pressure, um, and when you got into the the, to the event proper, uh, um, you know things were different, but. I'd have to say on most occasions we were qualifying at that point in time mid-gridish, you know, uh, not in the top 10, but, you know, not not out the back either. So I think we got through pre-qualifying, rightly so, and got into the race properly, um, and we were able to finish in the points on a few occasions. So I don't I don't really know that what was wrong with it, um, other than taking all the cars and run them all at the same time, or or halving the practice sessions so half the cars got running and the other half didn't. And then at the end of the day, you had twenty six cars start the race. I'm not sure what would have been the right thing, but I don't think it was that bad. I agree. I don't see how you can find a better system than a meritocratic one based on lap times. You know, at the end of the day, the stopwatch doesn't lie, and if you've got to kick some cars out because there isn't a capacity to have that many on the grid, then surely a Time run is the best way to do it. And actually, Gary, I mean, the question for you is, you guys were obviously in the fortunate position, I should say, of having a car that was competitive and could pretty much get through pre-qualifying easily. So was it a benefit in terms of extra track time and a bit of extra testing, really? Yes, it it was a benefit. For, For me, as I say, we never saw the tracks before we actually got there. So that was a big thing. Andrea de Cesar's was very good as well because Andrea had his, his logbook of all his, his career as such, uh, including his crashes. But he would, he, would, you know, he would know what wing levels they ran at various tracks and whether they had gurney flaps on the front wing or not gurney flaps on the front wing. And you know, we had our reasons for doing that sort of stuff. So Andrea was very good at helping us to get to the level that, that we could from, uh, you know, from a sort of a record of what he had done in the past. Obviously on a different car with different tires, different everything, but it did help to give you confidence in the levels of downforce you're going to run. So we got there and we took it wholeheartedly that pre-qualifying was a very important thing for us. And it gave us that extra hours running or it gives us an extra half hours running, let's say, because by the time the track cleaned up, it started to make sense. But the thing was you had to make sure that it didn't let you it didn't mean that you missed part of the next session because it was very easy because one one of them finished, I think it was 9 o'clock and the other one started at 10 or something. So you didn't have much time to turn the car around and get everything sorted. Uh, so you just needed to make sure that you actually ran to 9 o'clock and started at 10 o'clock for the next session. And if you let that slip, suddenly the advantage went, was taken away from you. But uh, yeah, again, I say, I don't think there was very much wrong with it. It was a stopwatch thing, which Formula One's all about. There wasn't enough room for... 36 cars, I believe there was at the beginning of the the beginning of a 91 championship uh, trying to get through into a race. There wasn't room for 36 cars on the track. Um, so at the end of the day, it was the, the best solution to a given problem. Yeah, I, th- I think I understand the point Christopher's trying to make, which is uh, 1989 was maybe the best example of this when arguably you had more than four cars in pre-qualifying who were better than some of the cars who were locked in based on their team's constructors championship position but as you say how you fix that without having 30 we're within 39 cars on track in 89 you know Ayrton Senna and co don't need the slowest pre-qualifying cars getting in their way lap after lap in proper qualifying so unless 
unless you reduced the number of cars who were guaranteed a slot and had a much bigger pre-qualifying session, very, very difficult to get right. And clearly that era was unsustainable because those teams could only go on for so long being sent home on Friday morning before uh, they uh, they ran out of any money they did have. Uh, Mark, you can take this next question from David Moore, who uh, has come up with the, this episode's Jacques Villeneuve question. I have to say, I love how many people submit questions about Jacques in the hope that I will, I'll accept them all, but uh, I do try and limit us to, to one every series. I thought it was just you writing in and making up a name for yourself. I hadn't realised people actually wrote in. Okay. Oh, yeah, we get loads of them. If it was a question from me, it would be, Mark, tell us why Jacques Villeneuve was so great. <laughs> um, but what David says is, uh, regarding JV and his quirky setup, I heard his throttle pedal was really short, like a switch. And that that is true. He had zero, pretty much zero throttle travel. David says, do you think this hindered him in wet races? JV's car control was top, so I'm surprised his wet weather performances do not stand out. Yeah, it's uh, as you say, it was absolutely true about throttle pedal, and I'm sure it wasn't ideal for the wet. Uh, when you when we see car control, we often equate it to rescue and slides, um, and it, but it can also be that car feel means you're ahead of the car and it, it doesn't get into the situation where you need car control to rescue it. Um, and that's usually a faster way of driving in the wet. So I'm not sure Jacques had that to the the degree that some of the great wet weather drivers did. Um, but yeah, he, he was very unusual in a lot of his set of preferences. He used to drive Patrick Head wide, mad with um, going stiffer and stiffer on the spring. He's always wanted to get a, a very sharp response from the car. Um, and but he, he he made it work, and he made it work, and um, you know to to the to the extent that he won a world championship. So you, you can't knock him as such. But yeah, very unusual way of going about things, and that throttle pedal was just one of them. And absolutely, you know, we can say with a fair degree of certainty that that that, that wouldn't have helped him in the wet. But it obviously gave him something that he liked um, for for how he chose to apply the power in the dry and then just had that instant response, I guess. I've seen uh, I've seen Mikasalo tell a story about when he did one of his BAR standing drives in 99, he had to drive the spare car and he said they didn't have time to change the throttle pedal setup from the way Jacques drove it. And he said it was, for, for, for a driver used to a conventional pedal setup, it was basically undrivable. Let's uh, let's finish off by with a couple of questions that mix the past with the present. Uh, you can all answer these, and up to you if you want to do it quick fire or give us an explanation. But for the first one, Carwin asks: Out of the modern greats, and uh, the names given are Hamilton, Vettel, Verstappen, Leclerc, who would have got on best in the V10 era, whether in terms of driving style required for that type of car or the different tyre characteristics compared? to the current Pirelli. So, Karun, you can go first on this. I think all of them. <laughs> That's a cop-out answer. You know, I firmly believe that the great drivers will be competitive in every era. You know, you could put... You had Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart driving now, or you had Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton driving in the 1960s. The cream will always rise. And, you know, I think... Yes, but, you know, going back to the point we mentioned earlier about Fernando's adaptability and things like that, that's a mark of the great drivers. And, you know, they, they will just get in and get on with anything that they are given to drive. So I, I, I it's a bit of a boring and predictable answer, but I, I, I genuinely think that your 
your elite 20 that we've had, shall we say, in the history of Formula One, they would have been successful in any other sport. What a grid that would be if we got them all together. Uh, Gary, are you, are you going to pick one or are you going to say all of them as well? Uh, I think I'm just going to say bring back Fangio. Um, <laughs> I, I agree completely there with, with uh, Karen. It's, you know, it, it's the drivers that that reach the top are good. You know, without a doubt, they're very, very good. I mean, they they're adaptable. They all that stuff. I mean, it would fit into any formula at any point in time. I mean, one of the things that I would put in there, I suppose, is, is just taking Sebastian Vettel uh, against his time with Mark Webber in the in the Red Bull. Whenever they had that a little bit of a a time where the uh, exhaust blowing uh, wasn't working very well. Um, Mark was better, you know, more competitive than Vettel at that point in time at the beginning of the season. I forget which year it was now. But the minute they got the exhaust blowing working, Vettel was 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 better again. So it shows that there are drivers that just don't quite fit the traits of the car uh, as well as others. Um, but I think that in the end, most of them would pick up how to how to achieve it one way or another, and all good guys are they're very good. Mark, can you can you give us a name? No, um, <laughs> <laughs> they've all got on fine with the cars and the tires. And as Gary said, Vettel's the only one in there who you might say has shown signs of not being fully adaptable in driving style to what a car or a tire demands, but. Back then, you could more in the V10 era, you could more easily adjust the car and the tyres to what was needed. You know, you had tyre development, and you could work with it like Michael did with it um, with Bridgestone to what was needed to that you felt you needed to maximise your own style. But even even so, I think any of these guys would have would have been fine. A great driver is just a great driver, and the ones who have adaptability issues, who you couldn't guarantee would be just as good in one era as another are of a lesser calibre than these guys. Who would have got on best would just have been who got the best opportunities, who got the moment or the right car at the right time. If you you had to pick between any of the any of those um, four guys who were mentioned, they, they they were each capable of dominating their era in the right car. Um, same as ever. And uh, that, that's that's just how it is. It's, it's not really... Um, people try and compare... The careers of drivers by stats, and that only gets you so far you, because you can't incorporate the specific circumstances um, into those stats. They, but you know who the great drivers are, and it becomes very clear over a, a period of years uh, of, of their careers. And uh, yeah, the, any any of them, any of them would have uh, could have dominated. Just depends on uh, where they ended up at. And it wouldn't it have been great to see these drivers flinging around those lightweight, screaming V10s as well? You know, they, they've all had to put up with cars that they all admit are, are so heavy. They feel heavy to drive now. I think they'd love to get their hands on a on a lightweight, low fuel uh, V10, perhaps from the early two thousands. A similar question about a different topic next, and this one's from Joseph Hudson, who says. Which modern track would have been awesome for the 1998 to 2008 generation of cars? So we're going to shorten that to cut it off at 2005. Rachel asked that question as well. And Chris asked a very similar question. And Chris put forward Baku as the one that could have suited the V10s very well. So we'll reverse the order this time. Mark, you can go first. And please tell me all three of you are not going to say all of the tracks. (laughs) Um, I would concur with Baku and just the idea of it going down that long, long kinking straight alongside the shoreline. 
um, V10s or a load of V10s going down there. Just that oh. that great white noise you would get. Um, and then and then hearing that that noise echoing off the buildings as you go through the old town. Um, yeah, that that would have been fun. That that's the one that um, I would like to have. That's the current track I would love to have seen the V10s on. I would absolutely conquer. Gary, what would you choose? Yeah, I think I think I'd agree with that completely. I think uh, Singapore as well. You know, just the echo through the town would be fantastic to hear. I mean, you know, you can relate that to Monaco. Uh, what it was like with the, with the V10s around Monaco. You know, leaving black marks for those that didn't have traction control out of the corners, but the noise was just phenomenal, bouncing off the buildings. But I think if you take a track, I still think that the tracks like Spa and uh, Suzuka, you know, real drivers' tracks are are very hard to beat as far as the driver car combination just using it correctly it's it's great to see that sort of thing i agree with baku but i also think saudi arabia with the um with the v10s would have been amazing to watch just because of the all the, the corners you got those high speed changes of direction you know we've got these cars now which are what are they 190 kilos heavier than 2004 and all of a sudden, if you have smaller cars that are lighter and able to change direction quicker through narrow street circuits and with, with fast-flowing sections like Saudi Arabia, plus you've got all the noise echoing around, I think that would have been pretty amazing to watch, really. Um, I think, uh, you know, I remember going to Singapore. In, obviously, it was a V8 era, but the early years when the Singapore GP came on, and Gary's right, the, the, the noise echoing off the buildings around the paddock was just bonkers. You know, you, you there's a great lamppost with a sort of electrical box that you can stand on top of. And I I, um, I dragged our, our friend and colleague, uh, Jimmy Roberts, out there a few times back in the day. And um, we would just stand on, the, I think the first four years, we just stood on this, on this sort of electrical box. And you couldn't speak to each other. And at that time, it was, you know, a 90-minute session for free practice. And you go that entire session... And you just could not hear each other. And I, you do miss that when you go to places like Singapore. That's fascinating that you all picked sort of variations of, of street circuits. I'm not sure I expected that. But if you if you go back a bit, <clears throat> during testing, you know, I always had a, a bit of a, a thing where I always tried to work out what lap time that my driver would do. And you could listen to the V10s, you know, the noise from the exhaust pipes at, at lots of tracks. And you could... You know, you'd know when they were lifting in the corner when they get back on the throttle, and I'd have a time for when they get back on the throttle on their best lap, and you know, trying to work it out because the noise was so in depth, it was so crisp and clean, it was just like a a light switch going on and off, and that's what made the V10 such a such a spectacle, you know, era. It was just absolutely fantastic. That that noise, as Karen was saying there, that noise just around you all the time was sometimes too much. I have to say. But, you know, you're there for it to do a job and you're prepared for it. So it was just incredible. You could just feel it. You could just feel it. As you say, these cars are, what, 190 kilograms or something heavier. And in the V10 era, you know, we had the refueling and all of that stuff. But, you know, you could take a, a Formula 1 car in the V10 era and load it up with fuel to do a whole Grand Prix and it still wouldn't probably be as heavy as what these cars are going out to qualify now. So... You know, it's a whole different dimension altogether. And also, I think the for the fans, you know, that sense that you could hear the car before you saw it created this sense of anticipation, right? You know, you'd get to the car park at Silverstone, and even before you'd got on the grass bank at Cops or whatever, 
you're already thinking to yourself, what on earth is going on? You know, what am I going to see? This screaming banshee coming out of Luffield, coming past the old pits. And, and it created this real sense of anticipation, which I don't think we have anymore. No, I think you're right. This, this is, in a way, it's a shame this isn't the last episode of the series. This is a great way to bow out a series, just just paying tribute to how brilliant the V the V10s were. When when you used when people used to go to see this era of F1 for the first time, people would always comment on the noise before they commented on the color or the, or the speed or the visuals. It, it was the sound that blew them away. Gary's right. Sometimes it was too much. I watched the. 2000 British Grand Prix basically from sort of the end of Woodcut onto the onto the start finish straight and at the end of the first lap I didn't have earplugs in I didn't have ear defenders on and I thought I'd gone deaf like the, the, the noise became so overwhelming suddenly all I could hear was just sort of fuzz basically and um that's probably a contributing factor for why when when I'm walking around the house I don't hear anyone when they're talking to me and I get in trouble all the time for not listening because uh say that again say that again Glenn. exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> you you were much closer to it for much longer than i was gary so you definitely have a pass um but yeah on the track question i thought you might all say austin it's interesting that nobody picked that one um i'm i'm gonna cheat a little bit with my answer because technically it's a track that was in f1 before the V10 era, but it's back now. I think Zanvoort, I think the the new iteration of Zanvoort with the banked corners and and still the brilliant sweepers out the back, uh, I think the, the V10s would be incredible around there. And obviously the Zanvoort atmosphere is phenomenal, even without screaming engines. I think it would just take it to another level. Um, but yeah, I think you could stick a, a V10 engine anywhere and, and it, it's going to sound great. And how could any of us forget when Fernando Alonso was doing those demo laps a couple of years ago and, and the famous interview where Lewis Hamilton basically keeps in, interrupting himself to, to marvel at the sound. That's what V10 engines uh, did to you when you were at the track. So let's leave this episode there then. Thank you so much to Mark, to Gary and to Karun for taking the question. Thank you to everyone who sent a question and apologies to the tens of you who we didn't get to. As always, we, we receive over, I think, over 100 questions every series for this. So it's so difficult. Um, to pick them all. We will come back after the series and answer a few more from the Race Members Club, but we have to finish the series now with something a bit different. So join us for episode 12 of this series where another team of us, I'll be with Ed Straw, Ben Addison and Matt Beer, and we'll be debating the 10 greatest cars of the V10 era. The Athletic.